We love the Employee Retention Tax Credit and what it does for clients. Find out if you qualify at iHeartTaxRefunds.com. As the first and only CPA firm in the country solely offering ERC services, JWC has helped thousands of businesses claim over $500 million in tax refunds. We're a licensed and regulated CPA firm committed to client education without the gimmicks and deception of unlicensed ERC companies. Learn how to qualify at iHeartTaxRefunds.com. Welcome to The Grit Daily Startup. I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk, and this is a podcast about what goes on behind the scenes at startups. The good, the bad, and the gritty. Let's dive in. Well, here we are in Austin, Texas. Grit Daily House, South by Southwest. Having a great time. The weather hasn't improved yet. It's gotten colder, Mm -hmm. but it's not stormy, not rainy. This Mm -hmm. is Karim uh, from Link2, Chief Strategy Officer at Link2. We're very excited to have founder and managing partner of Madre Ventures, CEO of AG Capital, Laura Walker-Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to have a little bit of an intro from you. If I look at your bio here... It's so much. It's you, you've, you've had interactions with people that I only dreamed about. And I Aww. watched in my early days as I was growing up, some of the movies that you've had here and helped mm-hmm. found and form mm-hmm. American Hustle, Still Alice, Dallas Buyers Club, Zero Dark Thirty, Under the Skin, Sprint Breakers. Um, the folks that you've dealt with, Reese Witherspoon, uh, Matthew McConnelly, Meryl Streep, Julianne Roberts, Jennifer Lopez, I mean, this is a pedigree that we can only imagine happens. But I know that you're doing wonderful things with Madre uh, Ventures. So give us a little bit of background and then we'll focus on the topics that's most interesting to you. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, love being here at South by Southwest. Love. I'm actually from Austin. I went to University of Texas. So this is kind of a uh, coming home. But um, yes, yeah, so my background, what what I've done for a very long time, it has been a through line to all of my work is that I quantify culture for a living. Um, I had a career switch um, about five years ago, um, and which I'll get into, but, um, I was a film finance agent at creative artist agency from 2007 until 2015. So, um, you know, being at that agency, uh, gave me access to a lot of those people, thankfully. Um, but it wasn't without its hard work. Um, uh, 2007, um, when I, when I started in my little film finance department, we were kind of the redheaded stepchild of the agency. It was a studio system, so we couldn't really get any product projects for our independent financiers. Um, and we had to get things slipped to us and it was, it was very difficult. Then 2008 happened and it had a real impact. The parent companies that own the studios, um, really had them crack down on spending. And um, a lot of directors and actors who had overall deals at studios were released from their overall deals. And they became free working agents in the film industry. And that kind of just meant anyone could have access to them. And so um, in 2008 and nine, we we rejiggered the department. There were 
I think five of us, maybe six who are working in that department. We changed a lot of things and we went from channeling about $10 million a year in film finance to over a billion dollars a year in film finance. So I personally went from working on one movie a year to about 75 or 80 movies a year. And I've worked on Academy Award winning movies. I've worked on shitty movies. You just never really know, you know, because it's art. And so, you know, I, I would represent the high net worth individuals and their interests on those projects. And so in quantifying culture, I would get a screenplay that would have a certain value to it. Um, and then I would have to think, okay, based on the genre or the execution of the script, it probably has X amount of value. But if I attach this director and this actress, then the value increases. And so I would have to have conversations with foreign buyers in lots of different territories and foreign sales agents to figure out, I, I, I would literally fill out an Excel sheet of like what the different buying prices were going to be in every single territory throughout the world. And then contracts would get banked based Based on that math. And I would put together the capital stack and the movie would go off and get shot. Then the movie, when it was finished, would come back to me and I would have to assess, okay, was this the film that everybody set out to make? Um, and you know, what market is going to be best to sell this project to a studio and get my investor reimbursed. And so sometimes that was Sundance. Sometimes that was the Cannes Film Festival. Sometimes it was Toronto. And you would just try to get a bunch of buyers in a room and best case scenario, you have a bidding war and you can drive the price up and make a profit. Um, and worst case scenario, you're working on a movie for like nine to 10 months and you're trying to find a buyer. But the goal was always get your investor reimbursed before the first day of box office, the first like opening day of the movie. And then the rest is just gravy. So um, I did that from, you know, and, until 2015. In 2015, I hadn't had a vacation in seven years and I was very tired. So I took a sabbatical for six months with the intention of going back to the agency. And then the first financier I ever worked with asked me to go run his family office. Um, and so I started running that family office and um, he had a Latin American studio attached. And so I, I ran operations there and that was really amazing. And then in 2017, I really saw what I call the Netflix effect happening, which is that Netflix was taking over by sheer force of spending. And um, it was really affecting the economics of what I was able to do. I couldn't, um, I couldn't forecast revenue for my investors the way that I used to be able to because the data was going into a black box at Netflix, at Amazon, at Apple, and they, they're not sharing the data. And so I said, I think it's financially responsible for us to, uh, to widen our scope of what we'll invest in beyond film and TV projects. And Madre Ventures was born in 2018. And so, um, you know, I started, instead of going to Sundance and Cannes, I started going to Ted and Davos and Milken and just getting into different rooms, having different conversations about culture. And I also, you know, went back to school. Um, I studied narrative economics under Robert Schiller, um, who's a Nobel laureate and just incredible guy. And, uh, you know, his, his work and, you know, other things that I studied really influenced, um, what I think we can offer to founders and investors today, which we can get into. So that's an incredible journey. Yeah. What strikes me really here, um, Laura, is how you, how you understood the narrative of a movie what happens with the influence 
of the actors and actresses and the storyline to create a blockbuster, which is really important. Secondly, the attribution of being able to say, look, we have to return the investors first, which is important. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then leveraging this into what you do at Madre, which is mid to large size companies and the narrative and the success mm -hmm. of those companies. So I, for the first, guys, for the, this is the <laughs> first time I've heard these two words together, narrative economics. <laughs> um, but I love it because I, I think I'm going to let you explain a little bit more about how narrative economics uh, works within today's corporate environment for companies that are starting from mid-stage to large state, because mm -hmm. here at Link2, as we start to acquire uh, secondary shares and securities for pre-IPO companies of companies that are growing rapidly, there is a narrative there. Mm -hmm. There is economics, and there's the understanding of the subtleties of the valuation based on those very subtle communications that people don't necessarily attach an economic value to. Mm. So putting narrative economics together starts to make sense to me. But mm. I want you to walk through your experience of how this affects companies that you work with at Madre Ventures. Yeah. Um, wow. There's a, there's a lot of ways to dissect this. I'm trying to think of how to do it on podcasts because normally I have graphs, numbers, and visuals. Um, but maybe, you know, storytelling might might help. Um, let's take um, Tesla's stock price versus General Motors stock price. Um, I think Tesla's stock price, it, it touched $1,200 last year, somewhere in November. Um, and General Motors stock price, I think their highest um, price was around $65 last year. Um, GM is doing a lot more actually, um, for, uh, you know, the revolution of, of cars and clean energy than Tesla is. Um, but their story is very different. And, um, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm all about outcomes over optics, which is why I tie my practice to data. Um, but like that is just a very highly visible, obvious example of how, People think about Elon Musk, what it says about them as an investor, if they are a shareholder in Tesla, they don't have the same pride as they do if, you know, GM was in their portfolio. Um, and some of that is like inexplicable, but, you know, other like it's an obvious example that narratives are just really important when it comes to these considerations. Um they, these, I don't think these practices should be split economics and, you know, psychology, because, you know, at the end of the day, these decisions um, are being made by individuals on a micro level and it's adding up to something very macro. Um, I don't know if that answers. Actually, your question. I, no, it actually does answer my question to a large extent, but I want to ask you a further question. Now, this may be a little bit itchy and feel free to say no. Okay. Um, but let's look at that. Uh, it's mm -hmm. all about the narrative of Musk and the narrative of GM and, and what happens and how you create a mm -hmm. fan base around that. And that sort of goes around the whole idea of coins as well. And there's a narrative around the coins, whether yes. it's Dodge or Shibu Inu, 
where we don't know what the underlying utility is, but they've mm. got a fan base because of whatever narrative they have. Mm. But if we look at the if we look at the current market today, the the, the current public market that we see today, mm. uh, and we see the resilience of meme stocks like uh, GameStop, for example. Mm. Uh, the underlying value of that has been said to be like $5 a share. And that, that's been standard based on their price earnings and based on their value. But it's been trading over $100, $150, for the last year. What is that narrative? What's the story behind these kinds of stocks? Well, you're touching on an obsession of mine. Um, so GameStop... Um, I, I, I figured out who Keith Gill was before his identity was revealed. Um, and I flew to Boston, um, right as this stuff was happening, uh, end of January, beginning of February. Um, because I really thought that he not meaning to accidentally is really the, became a figurehead, especially at that point of, of a movement and the narrative of what was happening with GameStop. Um, you know, I, I won't dedicate this podcast to GameStop, but um, what I will say is that I think the underlying fundamentals of that company are forward looking so much more solid than say AMC. Um, and I think that like any company that I work with has to have solid fundamentals before we can build a narrative um, around it. Otherwise, I'm just creating vaporware and sure. that's not responsible. Um, so I, um, I I just I, you, I I was taken aback a little bit because I, I follow GameStop every day. And it's really a case study that I am working on writing about because um, people's feeling um, about the stock, you know, it's it's completely decoupled actually from the value of 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 what the company is doing at its center, um, because it's not about GameStop per se. It's about um, dismantling a system and making change. And so people are just so much more interested in that story than they are GameStop itself. But I do think GameStop has made amazing strides in the last nine months in terms of who they've hired, what they intend to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, which, which brings up a really interesting point, right? Is if you look today at the public markets, mm -hmm. complete utter meltdown mm -hmm. um, in terms mm -hmm. of valuations. Mm -hmm. Companies that were trading as high as $200, as an example, now trading at $30 or sub $40, mm -hmm. that has dropped their valuation completely. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, we understand there are economic reasons why this happens, mm -hmm. whether it's the political situation, whether it's inflation, Fed, liquidity. Mm -hmm. Look, no one has a crystal ball, but I'm asking you're, you the question. Yes. Okay. So I don't have a crystal ball either. The way that I find the process to be manageable is I break it down into micro narrative strategies and macro narrative strategies when I'm talking to founders. So um, I, I first I ask, uh, you know, what do you what do you think your how do you think your company is being received today, and how much noise do you think you're making? 
and they'll give me an answer. I can then look at that company and the competitors and I can show them graphs um, because we draw from the fire hose of, you know, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, the AP wire Reuters. So I can look at social media and I can also look at traditional media and figure out like not only how many people are talking about this company, but what the sentiment is because I can figure out the, the quality of conversation, not just the quantity of conversation. Um, there's often some sort of gap between what the founders, how how they thought their company was being received versus how it's actually being received. And we want to close the gap on those two things. The other thing that I do is that you're right, I can't tell things 10 years in the future, but I really try to look at the founders' KPIs. Are you trying to raise for a series B or a series C? Are you trying to IPO? Like, you know, what is that event that's going to make your investors very happy? And we work backwards from that event. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Last year, we worked with a fusion energy company um, and you know, their KPIs have to do with um, getting government contracts. So I know that this is not a B2C play. Not at least not yet, because we'll probably go, you know, government contracts, then B2B, then B2C. So I don't need to worry about consumers right now in terms of audience. I need to really think about, um, you know, uh, I, I introduced them to a PR firm out of Washington who also have lobbyists attached. And that's really important in terms of getting money from the um, Environmental Protection Agency and the fire hose that has been opened in terms of clean energy. So that's going to get them to, you know, um, a really great liquidity event for their investors. And so Washington, D.C. is currently their audience, and then they will eventually go somewhere else. You know, they'll, they'll, and I will move the strategy with them. I also worked with a platform, an Oculus platform that's like a mindful meditation platform. And their goal was to um, capture first-time meditators, get them to buy Oculus headsets, and really just get used to meditating. And so that was a B2C play. And so that was very different. The exercise there was um, instead of you know introducing them to law firms and PR firms and business development contracts, it was who can we cast for the voice of the universe or the voice of life? Um, for this platform. So um, we cast the um, we cast Neil deGrasse Tyson for the voice of the universe because he's already kind of the voice of the universe. Um, and we're doing different partnerships um, with people who already have audience so that we can continue to fan out to consumers and make them aware of this product. And, um, you know, I have different... Um, um, I have different platforms that I use to be able to look at the legitimacy of social media accounts based on their engagement. And I can figure out who's buying followers versus who has real engagement so that we're th- those, those marketing dollars to those influencers or those authenticators are packing as much punch as possible. So that's like the micro narrative strategy when I'm working with founders and I'm really just trying to get them to their next event and then things will change. Um, and that changes because culture is fluid, right? Sure. Um, like I, I have a, I have a friend who um, they financed a movie, um, and there was an actor who was caught up in the Me Too event, and they made the very bold decision that even though they had shot the whole movie, they recast that person as another actor um, and shot those five or six scenes that that you know this actor was in because they knew that the macro narrative strategy of the Me Too movement was going to affect the micro strategy of their independent film, um, and that was the right decision. It cost them you know seven figures 
years to change it, but no one would have gone to go see the movie in protest to the Me Too movement if they hadn't made that change. And so I think I thought that was a very brave decision. So I think that, you know, you really have to you know, culture, you, I, I'm performing a surgical strike sometimes when it comes to packaging solutions together. And I, you know, I'm always like trying to read the headwinds and tailwinds of, of, of macro um, narrative economics as, you know, a backdrop to whatever a founder is trying to do. That's fascinating. So the other question here, though, is, uh, you know, as we continue here at our company, Link, to look for breakout companies that are going to go from growth stage to hyper growth stage, uh, culture is important. Uh, the narrative is important. Really, when when do founders and teams realize that this is important to them? And given the amount of, once you introduce them to a story, do they actually, do you actually see behavioral change that changes the direction of the company? Um, the earlier stage, the more flexible and receptive, the larger the company, um, it depends on the leadership. You know, it really does. I've worked with companies that, you know, their valuations are, you know, in the billions at this point, but they really understand it and they respect narrative economics. And so they, they treat it, they put a premium on it. Um, and then there are other larger companies that they feel like it's too hard to shift, um, you know, the the boat or like make different decisions. And so I think that if it's not within, um, a, you know, the leader's DNA, it's probably it's probably not going to work. I will say that, you know, there is a point where it's too early to start these exercises um, because, um, you know, I think series B and C is probably like the magic area where a founder is really solidifying the identity of the company um, and they can move forward with a solid strategy. What we don't want to do is we don't want to brand and then rebrand. We don't want to have a marketing or PR campaign based on that branding and then completely have to shift. I think I would rather work with founders who are in that B2C stage or later um, or like late stage, like pre-IPO. That's also perfect um, because they they really know who they are at that point. Um, And uh, I think the process runs much smoother. And in your experience, once uh, a company has honed down its narrative economics or <laughs> yeah. economic narrative once once someone realizes that have you done some sampling of folks let's say similar stage companies similar environments similar, similar demographics what is the compression in time for growth between someone who embraces narrative economics and someone who doesn't well I'm still measuring from internal KPIs. So I'm not like looking for external validation per se. I want to make sure that everything we do is getting a founder to either raise more capital in future rounds or, you know, to have a successful IPO at the price that's been set. Um, And so like all those things we can control also. So I think if we anchor ourselves to that, we're not like flailing in the wind because of, you know, things that are happening 
happening externally. Um, every company is so different. I mean, Madre's thesis is what would it look like to help a billion people? And the verticals are clean energy, mindful technology, and social wellness. So, you know, I'm working with a company right now that Peter Thiel invested in called Spark Neuro. Um, and Spark Neuro is um, a, a hardware that can actually diagnose Alzheimer's early, which hasn't been doable before. That's very different than the Oculus platform that's consumer facing. Um, and so it's, it's, it's hard to say what amount of time, but what I will do in a process, because I, I take founders through um, a three-step interview process where I do intake and then I have two more meetings with them and, 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 and we sync up and we figure out how, how do we create alignment here on the expectations and is this something that you can achieve or not? So it's really, it's a bespoke approach. I'm sorry I'm not answering your question. There's just not really an answer no, for no, it. No, no, um, no. But like I, I try to be clear about like, let's create alignment on what that goal is going to be and um, we either move forward or we don't. But at least they have the data at that sure. point, you know? I mean, well, one final question before we uh, we have to end this. Yeah. Um, there is a lack of representation for women founders uh, who are building companies or raising capital. Mm -hmm. As you, on your journey, speak with founders uh, that are in the growth stage companies, how do you see this this imbalance between founders who are male and, and women, and what is the reaction to some of the narrative economics you talk about? Well, I don't really talk to the female founders because I don't think that they need any more mentorship. <laughs> I think they need uh, people who are advocates who are sitting at the table. Um, conversations I have had um, is that because for, for every three to four mid to late stage companies I'm working with, I'm working with one early stage because I know that the women and the people of color, that's where they are right now in their journey. They're mostly very early stage. And so I feel like as a woman of color, like I definitely want to be helping them. The mid to late stage companies, they help pay my bills and also they can afford like, you know, um, a narrative economic effort um, for their companies. And, but a lot of those founders are white men. And so, um, sometimes when I'm working with them, uh, you know, I'll say to them in, in the kindest way possible, um, you know, this imbalance is not being created by something you're actively doing. It's really manifesting in silence. Like I'm not getting my emails returned, um, fast enough, or, you know, I'm being cut out of a meeting or something like that. And, um, I don't think that, you know, any man has, um, a goal to keep women and people of color, you know, away from the table. I think it, it is, it's about omission, you know, like just, and so I think that, uh, you know, when I worked at CAA, um, something that I did, I was in a very high volume business. Um, and for international women's month, which is actually this month, yes. um, but this was, this was many, many years ago. I said, I'm going to rearrange my phone sheet where I have to, um, return all the women's calls first. So what happened at that point that if I was going to have a conversation with a woman, I had to redline her contract first. I had to call my colleagues and make sure that her project was packaged first. And so that very simple act of just saying, I'm going to return women's calls first, totally revolutionized my business. And I just continued to do it month after month. No one knew that I was doing that until now that I'm saying it on a podcast. But, you know, it's small tweaks like that. I think that people can make, um, that will totally change the face of their business. And, um, 
and eradicate that type of omission. So, no, that I, I appreciate the candid uh, candid answer for that because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are hesitant or shy or or hiding behind mm. reality. Mm. Uh, and well, sometimes have them call me. <laughs> have them call me. Yeah, I'm going to have them. <laughs> we're going to have them call you, and she'll respond <laughs> to your email or telephone call immediately. Laurie Lee Walker Lee, changing the lives of a billion people. Mm-hmm. Through Madre Ventures. I love the word Madre. That mm. K, that means mother. Yes, it's mother in Spanish. And it's it's named after my mother, who is an immigrant. And she's 70 years old. And she still works 12-hour days. She's one of the hardest working women I know. And um, I felt like it was appropriate. Wonderful. Before we, we sign off, is there something that you want to say to the folks out there listening today? Listen to more of this podcast. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> Listen to it twice or three times. I think there's a lot to unpack it here. We got down a little bit of uh, a little bit down some of those paths. There's a lot more. Take a look at Laura Walker Lee. The company is uh, Madre Ventures, M-A-D-R-E Ventures. They're doing things wonderfully. They want to change a billion lives. Uh, empower that. Empower that to happen. We. It has been a Absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You and too. hopefully we will have you again at uh, maybe at the Global Investor Conference or a next Link to Learn event. We would, would love to have it. Would love that. Thank you so much for the invitations. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Grit Daily Startup. If you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. This podcast is brought to you by GritDaily.com, the premier startup news hub. More information at GritDaily.com. Once again, I'm your host, Sebastian Rusk. Until next time, friends. Head into your local Safeway for great spring savings throughout the store. This week at Safeway, get yellow peaches or nectarines for the member price of $1.88 per pound. Also this week at Safeway, value packs of Signature Farms chicken drumsticks, thighs, leg quarters, or picnic packs are buy one, get one free. Plus, get value packs of USDA Choice Boneless Beef Top Sirloin Steak for the member price of $4.99 per pound. Visit Safeway.com, download the Safeway for You app, or head in store to find more great deals at Safeway.